You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Jay Clayton spent much of his career at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, advising market participants on capital raising and regulatory enforcement after serving as a clerk for the Honorable Marvin Katz of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. In 2017, he became the chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. His SEC has just released a package of proposals that will define a standard for the fiduciary duty that broker-dealers have in advising retail clients, which will replace the Department of Labor's standard that was just struck down by the courts. He joins me now for a closer look. Jay, the SEC's new proposed best interest rule has been criticized by both the right and the left for being ambiguous. The concern is that neither broker-dealers or investors will clearly understand what's meant by the term best interest to a lack of a clear definition. What's your response to such criticism? I think it is quite clear, and it builds on a known standard, which is the standard we have in the investment advisor area. And said simply, it's that you can't put your interests as an investment professional ahead of your clients. Now, the SEC's language proposed for the best interest rule has been used to describe the FINRA suitability standard, the Investment Advisors Act fiduciary duty, and the Department of Labor fiduciary rules. So everything from status quo to radical change. 
Are you going to provide some sort of clarification of those principles and where on that spectrum of investors' best interest the SEC wants the new best interest standard to fall? Our package of rulemaking is intended to do just that, to bring clarity to the relationship between the individual, the retail investor, and their professional. Un under our package, to be, to be brief, the professional is going to have to provide clear disclosure of the financial aspects of the relationship. And that disclosure will form the basis for defining whether the professional has put their interests ahead of the clients. The new rule, if adopted, would require broker-dealers to make certain disclosures of conflicts the broker-dealer has to investors. But the disclosures don't eliminate or ban the conflicts. Why is simply disclosing a conflict adequate? Simply disclosing all conflicts is not adequate. Or said another way, it's not adequate to just have disclosure for different for certain types of conflicts. That said, any principal-agent relationship has inherent conflicts. There are, these are conflicts that cannot be eliminated by the very nature of the relationship. Our objective is to make sure that investors understand these conflicts, and in certain cases that they're eliminated, and in certain cases that they're mitigated. There are concerns that you are proposing a disclosure rule that's generic and perhaps legalistic. Do you think that retirees will carefully read and pay heed to such disclosures by brokers? I do. I think the requirement that the disclosures be in plain language and be in no more than four ordinary pages will give many retirees and others who are not familiar with our markets much greater insight into the relationship they have with their professional. I know I struggled with a similar issue in terms of mutual fund language insofar as investors were concerned. And it's really tough drawing the line between investor protection and uh, educating investors. It's not easy. What steps do you expect the commission to undertake during the rulemaking to determine whether or not retail investors are going to be informed by the disclosures? We've asked for input from all market participants, but most importantly, retail investors themselves. We've tried to produce a what we call a tear sheet, but it's basically a, a straightforward questionnaire that asks retail investors, is this the information that you want? In addition, we're going to have four town halls around the country to meet with retail investors. I will be attending each of these to discuss with them the aspects of their relationship and whether what we're doing is going to be an improvement. That's a great idea. What does the rule mean when it uses the term mitigate? Is it based on what a reasonably informed investor would consider is necessary to mitigate the conflict or merely what the broker considers adequate? My touchstone for all of this is what would the reasonable investor expect from their professional? So the short answer to your question on mitigation is what would the reasonable investor expect their broker to do to mitigate the conflict? 
Will the SEC make it clear that brokers are going to be prohibited from allowing their conflicts of interest to taint their recommendation to investors, and how? Let me answer that with a specific example. There is some concern that under current rules, once a broker finds two suitable investments for the client, they can recommend the one that pays the broker the most. We're not going to allow that going forward. You cannot make that selection based on, if you're the broker, you cannot make that selection based on the fact that it's going to pay you more money. The Department of Labor, Jay, went through extensive fact-finding, research, and cost-benefit analysis in 2016 when they adopted their fiduciary interest rule to protect investors. Do you expect the commission to engage in a similar and equally extensive analysis before the final rule is issued? I do. And a lot of that work was done before I arrived at the commission. This is an issue that has been under study for over a decade. We have um, many studies in the past. The commission did work um, during the period that the Department of Labor put forth its rule. And I've benefited from that past work. We've also continued to work because, let's face it, our markets are ever-changing. And in fact, they changed in some ways as a result of the Department of Labor's rule. So this is, this is an ongoing journey, but it's time for the SEC to step into this space. We are, we are the regulator that regulates the greatest amount of relationships between investment advisors and their clients. And that has been a principal motivating factor for me. Do you expect any further legal action against ending the Department of Labor rule in favor of the commission rules? And when do you think you're going to act on it? Those are, those are very good questions. We, we did not set out to do this um, with any particular legal action in mind. Um, and we've continued on the course uh, that we started, you know, regardless of what has gone on in the courts. Our objective was for our proposal to be a focal point for other regulators, not just the Department of Labor, but state securities regulators, state insurance regulators, uh, the federal banking regulators, all of whom have interest in the relationship between an advisor and their client. My, my hope, Chairman Levitt, is that our proposal becomes a focal point that people accept as the way to go forward, not one that we're dictating to them as the way to go forward. Would you say that the criticism, if there is such, of your approach as opposed to the original Department of Labor approach would be a lack of specificity? Is that what you understand the criticism to be? I have to say that the criticism doesn't come with a lot of specificity. Um, yeah, let's 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 just back up. The, the the big difference between the department of the Department of Labor proposal or rule and what we're doing is there was a a one size fits all approach there, which is which is fine, but treating investment advisors and broker dealers, which have much different relationships with their clients, the same. We're applying the same principles to both, but. At a more granular level, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to discharge the duty of not putting your interests ahead of your clients? We're actually being more specific for brokers and more specific for investment advisors because they have different legal relationships 
with their clients. And my hope is that we're reaching the same goals that the Department of Labor wanted to while respecting the business models and legal models that are in place. Let's not forget, 40% of American households have an individual relationship with a broker-dealer or investment advisor. I don't want to disrupt those relationships where they're working well. I, I, speaking from my own experience, I agree with your efforts to try to reach a, a reasonable middle ground in that regard. But which financial professionals are obligated under this fiduciary standard? And has that represented a change? To be clear, we're not doing anything to the fiduciary standard that applies to investment advisors except clarifying it and requiring them to clarify it for their clients. For brokers, we're raising the bar. We're also doing something that doesn't apply to an investment advisors. Investment advisors have a duty from which, through consent, their clients can agree to let them do things that may not be consistent with an absolute duty of loyalty or an absolute duty of care. For brokers, we're limiting the extent to which you can do that. Let's shift away from the fiduciary standard to something that is more part of the market scene today in terms of ICOs and cryptocurrencies. Uh, early this year, the commission issued a raft of subpoenas and enforcement actions targeting ICO token offerings, many of which you felt were simply frauds. What have you found and what's the current state of the market? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you a bit of a curveball here. Um, I remember when I was a young lawyer going to the back of the room at 455th Street when you uh, introduced an initiative on pump and dumps to get rid of them. And, uh, you know, pumping up the stock, taking innocent yep. people's money at a high price, and then getting out of town. Well, uh, when I came onto the scene here as chairman of the SEC, I saw a number of these ICOs, and they had all the hallmarks of pump and dump, and it really bothered me. And as we've investigated them, we found out that a substantial portion, and I'd even say a majority, have elements of that. It's horrible. And it was important for me to let the American people know that what might look like a stock and a stock that has, you know, the indicia of credibility is far from it. Um, I've, been, I've been very upset about this space. I've been very happy with the way the commission has turned our enforcement division, our division of corporation finance, to go after the fraudsters in this area. Where do you see the role of the states intersecting with the role of the commission with respond to the world of cryptocurrency, which up to now has been very largely uh, within the purview of various states around the country. So um, let me divide it into two spaces. There's cryptocurrencies, and the most common identified cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. These are substitutes or purported substitutes for sovereign-backed currencies like the dollar or the yen. We then also have crypto assets that are securities, and I've spoken extensively on those. On the pure currencies that are not securities, 
the SEC does not have jurisdiction over those. And a lot of this has been largely left to the states in the U.S. as regulators of money, money transmitter regulators. I recently testified along with Chairman John Carlo of the CFTC that we need to look at this space because some might call it a hole, some might call it a, you know, I don't know what they would call it. But at the federal regulatory level, our regulation of currencies is not like our regulation of securities. So are you saying that this should be more in the CFTC space than the SEC? Uh, no, I'm, what I'm saying is we need to watch this space because at the federal level, we regulate money laundering. We regulate illegal activity using transfers of value, such as a cryptocurrency. But to the extent people, for example, see a cryptocurrency trading on a platform, they should take no comfort that the SEC is regulating that platform and that that trading is being done in a fair and transparent way. If one of your children came to you and said, Dad, uh, I've heard a lot about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and I'm going to put some of my money into that, what would you say to them? <laughs> what makes you think that hasn't happened? <laughs> it's happened to me. Yes, yes, yes. Well, well, well look, what, what they should understand is that this, anyone who tells you they know where this is going I'm skeptical of. That's fair. What I've said to my grandchildren who uh, have asked me, A, should I invest in Bitcoin? Um, I say to them that I've taken myself out of the area of investment advice for many years, uh, but I wouldn't tell you not to. And they've gone ahead and they have bought Bitcoin. Well, if I told my children not to, they'd be sure to do it. <laughs> Daniel Alter, a former general counsel for New York State's Department of Financial Services, has suggested an ICO amnesty plan, a regulatory do-over for the first wave of ICOs. Regulate them now without rewarding past bad behavior. What do you think of that idea? I think to the extent that people have violated the securities laws to raise capital, that having blanket amnesty is not a wise decision. Currently, the commission, I'm told, is considering whether to classify the second most valuable cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin, Ethereum, as a commodity or a security. You haven't made a decision, but what are the arguments for and against those classifications? I'm not going to comment on a specific um, crypto asset as to whether it is or is not a security, but I can tell you that the test we have in this country for whether an asset is a security is a well-known test that has stood the test of time. It's referred to as the Howey test, but in simple words, Chairman Levitt, it means that if I give you my money in exchange for some bundle of rights— and that bundle of rights depends on your efforts, and I'm expecting a return from your efforts. You probably have a security. Because I'm handing over my money to you in exchange for something I'm getting, getting in the future that depends on your efforts. That's the very definition of a project funded by capital. And our securities laws were designed to protect people who turn over their money 
for somebody else to use it to build a project in exchange for a return. That's a superb definition. I, I couldn't add to that. Do you think that uh, we're going to see more cases brought in this area over the course of the next year? Undoubtedly. Is there a division of the commission, which is the enforcement division geared toward cryptocurrency? The, the enforcement division, um, with help from, I, mean, I want to I congratulate all divisions of the commission on a response to a phenomenon that has grown quite quickly, which is digital assets and whether or not they're securities. Um, they have coordinated, and our enforcement division is looking at these. And of course, you prioritize, and they're looking at the most egregious um, instances of securities law violations. Jay, in May, new rules will require brokerage firms to start disclosing some of the fees they charge individuals to buy and sell state and local government bonds. What's the problem that this rule corrects? Well, I want to, again, go back to, to, you, to your efforts when you were chairman. Uh, transparency is key to our markets. And if investors understand what they're paying, we have better markets. When investors understand what they're paying, you get better competition, better products. Can we get transparency in our debt markets? Again, you raise a good point. We have a level of transparency on our equity markets that is truly astonishing when viewed in terms of history. We go back 30 years, you know, there was a great deal of opacity and a great deal of toll-taking. Our, our debt markets are not where our equity markets are, but that's not just because you know, we haven't focused on the debt markets. They are different. So to bring transparency, you have to recognize the differences. But we are focusing on this, and the new disclosure requirements, the markup rules as they're known, are a good step in that direction. Where would you like to see us a year from now in terms of our debt markets? What specific drivers are we talking about? Well, some of it is reactive. We, we are seeing a great deal of debt trading shift to electronic markets. And it's our job as the SEC to make sure that as that transition occurs, we're adding efficiency, resiliency, and, and just you know, not in any way undermining market confidence. I, I believe this electronification of the debt markets can bring many of the benefits that have come to the equities markets. Um, we want to make sure that when we get those benefits, we're not getting unanticipated costs. Now, the commission always must deal with the issue of governance. Some commissions spend a lot of time on it. Where does the commission stand now in terms of governance? And what changes do you think you see coming within the next year? Are we talking about governance of public companies? Yes. We've had substantial changes in the last five <clears throat> to ten years in the governance of public companies. The direct access to decision-making from shareholders has increased dramatically. Yes. I'm in a stock-taking mode. I'm asking myself, what do these changes mean for how our companies are governed and how our markets perform. 
we have a really significant concentration of ownership of our largest public companies. That's a question that I ask myself as well. You know, so big shifts, concentration of ownership and greater direct participation of shareholders. I think it's time to take stock of these things and ask ourselves what they mean, what they mean for the retail investor, what they mean for the person who holds 100 shares, who really isn't participating in the governance of our public companies. Which constituent of the many that the commission has do you regard to be the most important constituent as far as you're concerned? Well, let me go back to governance. When I arrived at the commission, I was looking for a lens through which to, to govern the commission. And we have a statutory mission. But it crystallizes for me in what is in the long-term interests of our retail investors. And whether they're direct investors or invest through mutual funds, we, I think we serve our markets best, we serve the American people best when we have that type of person at the forefront of our mind. They need good, long-term investment opportunities that are fair and resilient. But market issues and investor issues don't always coincide. How do you draw the balance? How do you decide where you're going to come down? What do you want the commission known as? The Clayton Commission is known for what? Well, I think I tried to articulate it, which is we looked at our markets and we looked at the participants in our markets, the professional participants in our markets, for what long-term value to people who are invested in equity and debt did they bring? I mean, our markets are the envy of the world. I just got back from IOSCO, the International um, Securities Regulators Conference in Budapest. And I will tell you that every other securities regulator around the table would give everything they had to have the participation we have in our markets. And I want to make sure that those long-term participants are getting value from our markets. So would you want your commission known as the Markets Commission, the People's Commission, the Regulators Commission? What, what I th imprint I, do you want to leave? Well, on, on a choice among those three, I'll take the People's Commission. Great. That's what I thought you'd say. Congressional Democrats recently sent a letter to you with their concerns about rumors that the commission is considering allowing companies to include forced arbitration clauses. What's your thinking about this? I've been clear about this issue. I'm not interested in taking up the commission's bandwidth to address this issue at this time. We have a lot we have to work on. This is a highly contentious issue, a highly political issue, and not one that I want to spend a great deal of the commission's resources on at this time. I'm glad it's your issue, not mine. Before becoming the chairman of the SEC in 2017, Jay Clayton was a partner at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell for over 20 years and a lecturer in law and an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Since joining the commission, Chairman Clayton has proposed a package of new rules for a fiduciary standard for broker-dealers, and he's fighting fraud in the ICO token markets. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have 
comments about the program or suggestions for topics, email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.